Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Rose Marshak, who is the author of Play Like a Man, My Life in Poster Children. Rose, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So could you start by talking about why you wanted to write this book? Like, how did this, um, like, sort of memoir of your time, well, and you're still in Poster Children, but this time, how did this come to be? This is so I'm I'm a I'm a college professor and we're supposed to be writing books, you know, (laughs) it's like one of the reasons why, why, why it happened. But also, I mean, so I've had I've I've. Um, this book is comprised of my, what I called tour reports, which I, you know, is a blog that I started in 1995 while we were on tour. And I, it's, is, you know, I'm trying, I've been trying to remember why did I do this? Why did I start this? It had to do with the internet. Um, it had to do with having access to the internet. It had to do with, with, um, just the fact that like being, being in a, this type of band, at least this type of band, um, uh, full of like people who read books and like really interested in all kinds of different things. Um, that this, you know, we, we would have these amazing conversations in the van and also just with people that we would meet. So we'd, we, you know, we, we, we toured a whole lot, um, so we, you know, traveled all over the United States in our little van and, and we'd sleep on people's floors and we'd, we'd, you know, we'd have bands opening for us and we'd open for other bands like us. And it was just, just this amazing time where you just meet people and you'd talk to them and you'd find out about their lives and their cities and what they did and what they cared about. And so I would start like documenting this and at the same time we had in urbana we had a a, a free net a free like so this is 1995 or so we had this free net called prairie net this was free access to the internet so you didn't have to pay for aol or anything like that so so the fact that we had this space on the internet was was really neat to us we were like oh my god you know what can we can make a website so i had to learn you know this is like little areas on the web that could teach you how to write an html and then at that point i thought well i should just since we're going all over the United States, I can start every night, we can sleep on somebody's floor and I can ask if I can unplug their phone and plug it into my computer and just upload my handwritten HTML to our website. So uh, other people can read all the amazing things that were happening to us. And it's, you know, very self-important, um, but whatever. So anyway, so those were, those have been sitting on, on the internet forever. And I kept running into people who said, oh, I love your tour reports. You should make a book out of them. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. And at some point, I think that some of them got reprinted in like the one of the Chicago um, uh, newspapers, like on actual paper, which was thrilling to me. And, and so, you know, enough people were saying, oh, you should, you should compile this into a book that I thought, well, maybe I'll try it. And I think just, I was teaching a music business class and one of the guys who was guest speaking said, you know, you should write a book. And my friend works for U of I press. And I was like, wow, I'd love to be on the press of my alma mater. Maybe I should just try this. And so it's just all, my whole life is full of like, oh, maybe I should just try this. So that's the, yeah. Look where it got you. 
Yeah, yeah. So when I first compiled all, and 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 when I first compiled all the tour reports and made it into a word document, that's like that. So p- word pages are not the same as like normal pa- as book pages. Like a word page is not the same. So uh, I think I calculated out it was over a thousand pages, and I was like, oh, okay, that's that's too long. And then you know, then when I talk to people at the press, and they're like, well, what you're going to need to do is contextualize, and you know, and <laughs> you're going to have to write in between. And you know, Rick probably said this too. You can't just have the tour reports. You have to write stuff in between and talk about what it means now. Contextualize, right? And I was like, oh, that'll be hard. You know, and everybody was like, yes, but you can do it, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. And so now when people talk to me, they say about the book, they say, it's so amazing that you have these tour reports, but then you contextualize this. I'm like, yeah, I guess it is. It was very hard. (laughs) But you did it, right? You did it. Yeah, yes. And it is, right? It's this great way to kind of document this time in history and this experience you had you all had right and i just am imagining in in the early and mid 1990s like it wasn't like you brought around your laptop either right like you had a computer that you kind of carried around and plugged it right it wasn't like i think sometimes people think oh you just had your laptop and you plugged it in it's like no well, it was it was kind of it was a bigger laptop. It, it was it was a kind of a yeah, a bigger thing. I remember um so some of the first tour reports, the first ones were in Europe. Um but at some point I we were on the traveling Lollapalooza back when it traveled and I remember we got like we I me I I got this like eyeball camera, this thrilling like webcam. It was like the first web camera ever and I was like you had to plug it into the computer and it looked like a little eyeball and I remember like like I got to take a picture of Perry Farrell because he's over there, you know, I'm like, just me. I know I'm nobody. I'm a bug compared to Perry Farrell. But if I bring this laptop over with the eyeball camera, maybe he'll be interested in it. And I remember going over there like, and, and being like, look, Perry Farrell, here's my, my laptop with this cool eyeball camera. And he had a cooler one. So it was like, oh, well, whatever, did. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a little, it, it, yeah, it was, I mean, it was different. It, it was very different back then. So, so in contextualizing your book, you've divided it into four different parts. So I thought we could just start with um, part one in like the 1980s. So kind of sort of pre band and and all of that and talk a bit about that like college because this is a story of poster children in your experience but it's also kind of a story of you in the in a time before people were um, doing a lot of IT work doing a lot of you know studying computers and internet sort of going down that route too right and thinking about music business and thinking about all these things so can you talk a little bit about um that first part kind of um what call you know college and and what that was like in sort of getting started in um music and computers and and punk oh yeah yeah this is a, this is a great question um uh where, yeah, where to, where to start? Because, like, the first interview I had, somebody was like, and what was the scene like? Talk about the scene back in the 19, like, late 80s and early 90s. And the person who was asking me, like, knew 
Like I was in a room full of people who were there. And then I was like, well, you know, you know what it was like. I couldn't even fathom, like how, and then like, then like the next interview I had, I was standing in front of like a bunch of like Gen Z and millennials, like in a music business class. And I was like, you know, and then we had to sign to a major label and they were like, what, why somebody like in the back of the room, like raised their hand and said, was that bad? And I was like, oh, oh, honey, we have to explain like, oh, not everybody was with me at the time. So I guess I have to explain this. So, so in the late eighties and nineties or early nineties in my college town and every other college town, pretty much in, in America and probably in, you know, Western Europe too, bands toured around, like bands drove like cool bands like the Minutemen and, and Husker Du and and uh, trying to think of you know other bands at that time SST bands on the SST record label right as you know would drive around and they'd be booked in these little clubs and the clubs would seat between seventy and a hundred and fifty people maybe in that seat they'd stand they'd be standing they'd be sandwich shops or just different bar, little bars and and there was a network of booking agents. Um, that would book these bands and a band would come and play like a band, like I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, um, of the, like thin white rope came, you know, from, from their home. And I think they were from some part of California that I can't remember right now, some college town in California. Uh, and, and they were driving through, you know, and then, so, and people knew about them because they would, buy their records and they'd see their records in the record store. I wrote about this too, you know, like these new releases would come out and there was this guy in the record store that named the Quaker who would like put little reviews on the records and you'd go in and you'd be like, Oh, that record looks neat. And then you'd have to buy it. You wouldn't be able to hear it on the internet first. Right. So you'd buy, Oh, there's this band thin white rope and then oh, they're coming through. They're driving through. They're going to be in Madison, Wisconsin, which is five hours away from us. And then the next day they're going to be in Champaign, Illinois. And then the next day they're going to St. Louis, another three or four hours away, you know? So this was your Tuesday night chance to see them. And so you'd go, you, you know, you go and and so these bands also needed opening bands. So the guys who booked these bands would look around the, the local area and what local bands might draw some more people in to see them. And so we were one of the local bands that would get to open for these bands. And, and so that, you know, it was very exciting because we'd get to meet bands that were traveling through, you know, that were kind of gurus and, you know, gods to us. But then also they might ask us to go on tour with them or play with them somewhere else. Or we might trade shows with, you know, wonderful bands like House of Large Sizes from uh, Iowa and, you know, and, and like Walt Mink from Minneapolis. You know, there were all these fantastic bands, right? So we would trade shows with them. And so, and then you'd get to, you know, you'd, you'd be driving through the Mercy Rule in, in Nebraska and, you know, you'd, you'd meet your friends, you know, you kind of, you'd see these people every couple of months and catch up with them. And so, I don't know, does that answer yeah. the question? Yeah. And you were, um, so at the same time too, you were going to, right? You weren't only, I think sometimes we have, um, these stories from folks who were just in a band, right? But you were also going to college at this time and kind of navigating that space. And so can you yeah. talk a little bit about that too? Like, yeah, like, so this is, you know, how because like you're saying, you have to kind of 
to be in a band, especially at that time, you had to travel, right? And so, like, can you talk a little bit about that, too, and what that was like, kind of navigating? Sure, yeah, yeah. So, um, it you know, you, we, and one one of the bands, um, Steak Daddy 6, uh, in in my book, you know, they're, like, uh, Gordon, um, uh, who's one of the drummers, one of the two drummers in that band, um, talked a lot about this. They were engineers, you know, we were engineers, too, but they were, like, like, that, yeah, it, it, they were really into the fact that like they would go to these really tough engineering classes during the day, and then they'd be, they'd they'd be doing their homework. You know, it was very very angsty type you know time. And then you'd finish your homework, and then you'd go practice in the dorm. You'd play, you know, like really loud, ridiculous music. You'd attach a toilet paper roll to your base. You know, you'd light your nipples on fire and stuff like that. But you were an engineer during the day. You know, it was sort of this sort of this kind of release. And I really liked that too. I loved the fact that like I could be sitting in in a computer programming class, you know, with a bunch of other like you know engineers. Um, and then like kind of have this other life. So that was also really fun too, is, is, um, like touring, like we'd, we'd go play, we'd, we'd be driving all night to get back to our jobs, like to our computer programming jobs. And it was kind of, kind of fun to lead two different lives. Uh, I think it gives you perspective on, on each life, you know, you get back and you're like, you know, normally like, oh, I'm going to have to program this computer for the next eight hours. But it was kind of like, well, I, I I just spent two hours looking for a clean bathroom and trying to find a, you know, a, like a gas station on the road and my alternator caught on fire on the way here. So, you know, sitting in a safe, nice uh, computer programming cubicle is kind of, it's okay. That's, that's <laughs> nice. So can you talk a little bit about how poster children kind of came to be and how um, you all got together and started this band um, to get, and then we can get into maybe thinking about the indie labels and, and doing that kind of the indie choice and all of that. Ah, yeah. Yeah. It's um, poster children. So Rick was already in a couple of bands in the, in the dorms um, and, and people, you know, people would keep leaving, somebody would graduate, uh, somebody, somebody's parents wouldn't let them bring their drums back to, uh, to school because they weren't getting good grades, uh, stuff like that would happen. Um, and the reason they weren't getting good grades was not because of the drumming, it was because of what they were doing when they weren't drumming. Um, but, but yeah, so, so, um, I think bands formed in the dorms and then there was just this, you know, just these amazing bands coming through. You kind of wanted to be like that, you know, you're like, wow, maybe one day we can go play other places like that. So at some point, um, we, you know, I joined, I joined the band, um, their, the band's base, the band that Rick was in, their bass player kept quitting. And so at some point I was like, Hey, I'll help out. You know, when he's not there, I'll just come in. And then if he comes back, I'll just leave. That's okay. And, uh, I had never played bass before, so that's funny kind of, but I played other instruments. So, um, I was able to, 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 you know, just come in and, and play bass with them. And, uh, and yeah, so things just kept evolving. We would play in house parties and then we would get a show at one of the tiny local clubs. And we liked that. We liked playing in front of people and then, you know, different bigger bands would come through and we'd get to play with them. And those, you know, feedback was, was nice. And the best part of like, one of the best parts of all this was like 
after the show, like just standing outside the, the, the venue and talking to people, that was the best part, you know? These were like what they call third places too, right? So people, you know, a first place is your house. I believe your second place is work, I believe. And then the third place is the place that you go to when you're not at, <laughs> you're not at home and you're not at work. You're, you know, hanging out with people. It was a physical spot. It wasn't like a game chat room. So it was, it was really, I just remember these nights like these warm nights with like wind blowing across my face talking to other people just about whatever had happened at the show or you know politics or culture it was just just absolutely a, just a really nice time so what so you start this band and you talk and you mentioned this before but you also in the second part this pre-major label kind of talk about the ethics of i think you called it the indie code of ethics right so can you talk a little and then you kind of talk about going from local regional national can you talk about that that because i do think like you said like some people don't know or haven't experienced that can you talk about that idea of the indie code of ethics and what that kind of meant at the time and in the scene yeah, none of these bands that I'm talking about ever wanted to be signed to major labels. That was like that that's not we wanted we were like we can do this all ourselves. We get to choose what music that we're going to write. We're not going to try to make music that that will pander to anybody. We're going to, you know, some of the music was rebellious. Some of you, you know, some of it, you know, you you were you were rebelling against the the status quo. Um, and, and, but you, you still, you didn't need anybody to help you. You know, you didn't need somebody to give you a bunch of money to buy a tour bus or something, you know, or like to rent a tour bus or to buy a van or anything like that. You didn't need people paying clubs for you to go play at you. This was just all like a, like a real, real, um, like DIY do it yourself endeavor. So, so that said, you know, major labels were kind of, you know, we'd, we'd look at bands that were on major labels, like, oh, well, they're, they're part of a machine. Their job is to make money. They're products. They're, they're called the talent. They're not even, they're not called a band anymore. They're the talent. Their, their CDs are called product. And we didn't want any part of that. And, and the thing is, you didn't need to be, you didn't need any part of that either. You could kind of make it, you know, if you were real frugal and you didn't get hotel rooms and you didn't have roadies, um, you could totally make it on, on your own. And you, if you sold t-shirts at shows and you got fed, you know, some, somebody make you a lasagna or pizzas or something like that every night. And when you play at the venue, you could totally make a living like this. It's, as long as you went back to like a, like a cheap town to live in like champagne. Um, now I've, now I've lost the question again. Just like, no, like that code of ethics. And then yeah, you, the, right? the code of, yeah. Yeah. So I have to, I have to, I have to look this up in my book because I have, I had, what I did was I, I wrote on one of my social media things. I said, Hey, what do you guys think is, is an indie code of ethics? Um, somebody give me some rules. And it was something like, like a couple of minutes later, I had like 40 responses and people saying, well, you can't, if you're a drummer, you can't take off your shirt and wear gloves at the same time. Or you're, if you're, you're, you know, you're an opening band, if you're a headlining band, you got to move your drums. You can't, you can't force the opener to 
set up in front of you and like be lazy and not move your drums. You can't limit the other bands like sound noise level because major, you know, big bands would do that. Uh, you have to move your stuff off the stage as soon as you're finished with, you know, playing. You had to just be nice to everybody. You had to be really, really respectful of everybody. Um, and, and it's, I think in the book, I said something like it, it reads like a, the Midwest code of like, of humility. It's like you, you had, you wanted to be humble about everything. And then I have quotes from Steve Albini, this great quote about how you had to be nice to everybody. You had to be inclusive because there weren't enough people in the scene anyway. You know, everybody was, everybody was an outsider from everything else. So we were all insiders in this scene. And you right. didn't, yeah, you, oh, there was some other things too. Like you didn't expect to just be, ha, be handed like a huge bundle of money for your, because you're, you know, you're worthy or something like that. So that would have been like the idea of a major label, just bestowing money on you. And then you having to make it back in some way, you know, you, you took what you earned. I think that was, that was important. So signing to a major label, you know, is not something, you know, that was like, like almost like puffery, you know, a little bit. Right. And you talk about like, and I think it's important to think about that too, or to people to realize that you needed those kind of those ethics or those understandings because you were, even without a major label, you were touring all over. So you had to hope, right? Um, and trust, I guess, that people even outside of where you lived who didn't know you are still going to have that same kind of understanding about what it means to be in a band. Oh, yeah, yeah. And everybody did. You like, like, if somebody was, somebody was mean to you, like, yeah, I think somebody was mean to us in some city. And I can't remember what city it was. I, I think it was in Ohio somewhere. And I remember just telling our booking agent. The booking agent, our booking agent, was like, "Well, I'm never going to book, never going to book another band at that place ever again." And it wasn't just her. She was going to tell all the rest of the network of booking agents to not like somebody. You'd get a bad <laughs> reputation. It would spread faster than the internet because th th there were curators of information trusted curators and you like if if somebody somebody pissed off botch like the booking agent for all the cool chicago bands like every the, every booking agent would hear about it and and you know you'd have so people people developed reputations and then you didn't want to sully that reputation yeah and I, I have to say that i think that and it's still like 40 years later, I think some people still have that, you know, even if they've tried to change that reputation still is there, right? People remember how someone acted during that time period um, or how someone didn't act. Right. And yeah. And that sort yeah. Of stays with them. Yeah. So, so you, you toured, you did the indie thing, but then you decided to sign to a major label, right? So your um, sort of part three, 1993 to 1996 is this major label life. So can you talk a little bit about why you, why you did make that choice to then sign with a label um, and, and what that was kind of like for you and for your band? Yeah, so in the early 90s, there were a couple of like band, like Sonic Youth signed a major label. And we were like, why did you, why'd you guys do that? Like, why would you do that? Nobody's, nobody wants to, you're not going to be famous rock stars. And we figured, you know, like once, like to us, like you signed a major label, that means you need to be played on commercial radio stations. 
So that means that you have to make songs that, you know, people won't turn off the channel when they hear you. And you got to sell, like, if you sold 60,000 records on a major label in the early 90s, you were, you were an absolute failure. Like 60,000 records, forget it. You're, you're, thank you. See you later. So, you know, 150,000, that's where you were like, well, maybe we'll keep them for another, you know, record. lane. we were like, we never thought, you know, we would sell that many records. We didn't think we had huge commercial potential. We had no, no interest in trying to have huge commercial potential. We just wanted to keep making the songs that we liked. But um, on the label that we were on, we were on this wonderful indie label called Twin Tone Records, and we shared the label with Soul Asylum and the Replacements, right? That you know, like fantastic uh, indie bands. Um, and but but so their distributor went bankrupt. Their distributor was Rough Trade, and there's books about how Rough Trade went bankrupt. And what that meant for us was we would travel around. We'd, we'd like go play in Idaho or something, right? We'd, you know, well, we hadn't played there yet. We'd, we'd go play in Iowa. People would say, I went to the record store and I couldn't get your record. And then, you know, there was no internet at that time. So this, the only way you would hear us is if you bought our record. So nobody could get our records anywhere, like at any store, because this this rough trade had gone bankrupt. And so that was a problem for us because we we that was one of the things we wanted was people to be able to hear our music. And then if you can't get, you know, if you can't walk into the record store, find out there's this great new band, Thin White Rope, Poster Children, you know, Breeders. Uh, Pixies. Um, if you if you didn't see that in the record store, you wouldn't know to go see their show. So we were like, well, I don't know, you know, maybe we need to maybe we need to think about signing to a major label. And we were having major label interest. So it was like Sire and Columbia and um, Atlantic, like these three big major labels were like like interested in us hey when are you playing in new york next we're going to come see you and so so we really started you know we were really frustrated with with twin tone and also you know daisy chain reaction our second record came out on twin tone and we weren't allowed to make the cover art for it and we were we were like what <laughs> that's the whole idea of being on an independent label so we were upset about that too so we were like, oh, well, maybe, you know, and I have, I think I have written about this. This is one of my favorite stories to tell now. Um, we were getting ready to go on tour and we were, it was going to be a West Coast and East Coast tour. It was our first West Coast tour. And, and Rick said, well, this new band Nirvana signed to a major label and they put out their, they put out this record, Nevermind. And let's see if, if DGC destroys this band and no one ever hears about them ever again, then we'll know maybe we shouldn't sign to a major label. But if they make it through this release and people hear of, you know, people find out about Nirvana and they do reasonably well, then we'll consider signing to a major label. So we like have this video footage of us like driving from, you know, Chicago to Minneapolis. And we're like listening to Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's like, then we're like, oh, this is a great song, you know? And like, we drove up, like up, like from the middle of, you know, I-35, right? And then we go across to to Montana and go across to Idaho and Seattle and Seattle. Um, and I think in Montana, maybe we were, we had a, you know, indie, indie, um, 
like college radio interview. And at the end of the college radio interview, they're like, Hey, you know, what, what songs are you liking now? What do you want us, what do you want us to play? And I remember we were like, Oh, play that Nirvana song smells like teen spirit. And they'd be like, yeah, it's awesome. Okay. And then we got to Seattle and we stopped at Sub Pop because we, we had a Sub Pop single also. Um, so, you know, we'd stop in there and we'd like, there's dude like in a t-shirt warehouse and he's screening Nirvana shirts. And it's just one dude like making the Nirvana, like the yellow face Nirvana shirts. And he's like, yeah, we're getting lots of, of requests for these shirts. It's like, I don't know. I may have to hire, like hire some help. Cause it's like kind of weird how many people are wanting these Nirvana shirts. And then like, like, I think by the time we got to like, San Francisco and had another college radio interview and you know what do you want to hear and I think I was like play that cool smells like teen spirit and the guy's like no and I was like why don't you like it and he was like that broke that's on commercial radio now we're not gonna play that and I was like what and so, you know, we made it around, we played in, in Texas and then we, I, by the time we got, we went up the East coast, um, there were 17 different labels looking at us then, you know, they're like, looking who's going to be the next Nirvana. So that, that's my story about, so then at that point we're like, well, Nirvana did okay. I guess it, we'll, we'll sign to a major label. We won't take tour support. We won't rely on them because we know when we sign to a major label, we know we're going to be dropped from the major label at some point. And we want to, we, everything we do, we want to have longevity. We want to make sure that, you know, we, so if we took tour support and then we didn't have it after a while, we wouldn't be able to tour. So we, we did everything on our own. And that was our, you know, we went with a label that had other weird sounding bands and, you know, it didn't like, like I remember, I think I talked about this in the book too. Like we, we had a, we had an, um, we were looking at um, Jimmy, Jimmy Iovine's label and I can't remember what it was now. Um, but like, you know, really cool new boutique label, you know, and our, our friend slash manager at the time was like, yeah, this would be cool. You know, and I remember talking to some of these people and like, how many, how many, records do you think you could sell for us? And they, they'd be like, oh, easily 250,000, 300,000. And we'd be like, no, red flag, because it's not going to happen. <laughs> we shouldn't go with these people. We need to go with somebody who's knows who we are and just, you know, kind of knows our, our potential, which, you know, we're, we're not going to sell out. We're not going to, we're not going to change our music to, to, uh, to sell more records. Right. So you did this for a little while and then you kind of, um, you, so you talk about that and then you talk about kind of after that, like the post major label, once you decided, once you moved away from that. And so can you talk a little bit about then sort of that last, right? Part four and, um, the post, like after 1997, where you, you know, talk about like online participation, but also um, sort of your life after that label and after sort of that time period. Yeah. Yeah. So during, while we were on the major label, that's when uh, Napster came out and that's when all of a sudden people, people didn't need to buy CDs and albums anymore. And the record labels were 
like terrified. You know, I remember just talking to the people at Sire and Warner Brothers and Reprise, you know, they're like, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start putting out CDs with like extra, extra information on them, you know? And so we, we got to make enhanced CDs on that, on that label. That was really cool. Um, so that, you know, at that point people could trade sound files on the internet, but they couldn't like videos were way too, that was, would require way too much bandwidth. So you couldn't, you couldn't download videos yet. So, so the idea was to put like videos and games and stuff on your CDs. And, and that's what we did for, you know, so that was really fun on reprise and stuff. But at some point, you know, near the end of, of that, like whenever we left the label, um, we, you know, at that point, nobody, like, the, there was a huge decline in CD sales. It was absolutely ridiculous. And, and you know, we, we knew, like, also at that time, we were starting to focus on Salary Man, which is like our alternative, um, alternative, alternative electronic band. So we were kind of touring in Europe a lot at that point. We we're like, oh, let's focus on this for a while and then come back to Poster Children. So, so it was good. But, um, yeah, I mean, I realized through writing this book that that by the time we left the major label, we didn't need them anymore. We we could distribute, you know, people could get any of our music online. People didn't have to pay for our music. People didn't have to pay for anybody's music. And so it's back to like the old days of like what's important is touring and, you know, being in front of people. And then for us, what was important was getting, you know, just like... <laughs> blabbing like nattering getting our nattering opinions out there so you know we started we made this podcast back in i'm trying to remember we started in 1998 so the 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 year that podcast the word podcast came out was 2005 but we were already like uploading sound files of of our 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 nattering (laughs) for years and and that was one of the things that we we um, focused on doing also. So you and and you have this. You're still playing. You're still performing. Um, but you also are teaching, right? You have this balance of many, right? You've been doing many things, and you do martial arts, right? So can you talk a little bit about that kind of? And and I think that's an important thing and something that comes up through this is like how you balance a life with. Um, playing and performing and teaching and and all of that this is like the david foster wallace like fish like asking another fish what's the water like like i i don't i mean i i people do like oh yeah you do so many things but i don't feel like i do a lot of things um i just do the things that i like um i mean you know, maybe I don't watch a whole lot of TV or something. Maybe that's, that's, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but it seems like, yeah, yeah, I guess there's, there's a lot of hours in the day, right. To do different things. (laughs) I'm, uh, I've, I've been studying martial arts. I've been practicing martial arts, um, since 1985 or so. And it was when we, when, uh, when I went for my first degree black belt, we had to write, you know, among the other things in our essay that we had to write, this is a wonderful, wonderful school that I trained at with a brilliant man who I wrote about, um, 
but one of the things we had to write about was was why we started martial arts. And I remember thinking that all my colleagues and my colleagues who were taking the the first degree black belt test with me were doctors and scientists and lawyers. They like literally there was a there was a surgeon, um, a lawyer. Uh, and, and, you know, just other like scientists, there was a physicist, stuff like that. And I remember thinking, oh, they're going to be writing, like, who knows what they're going to be writing. Like it came to me, I was, while I was in, you know, on a mountaintop hiking somewhere, I decided that I should start martial arts. But like for mine, and I was just like, well, I started martial arts because I saw the karate kid and I was a kid who got, you know, made fun of and beaten up all the time. And I, that's, that's why I started. So I think I wrote that in my essay. It was just, yeah, karate kid. <laughs> the first one um, the original yeah the original <laughs> it, it turns out that's like a story that you hear like for like that's how capoeira started the the brazilian martial art that i practice like there's always like a like um somebody's beaten up and then they learn this brand new martial art from some you know it's it's kind of like the uh the yeah it's it's like a, a it's like a classic tale for like every martial art so, um, yeah, but you were asking me, were you asking me how I do all this stuff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, I don't know. On Monday I do one thing and then actually I probably don't spend a whole lot of time on music. Like, like I think that, um, you know, just being, I'm just a bass player and like, I have, like I have perfect pitch so I can, I just kind of know what to play all the time. And I'm like classically trained. Like, so it's, you just, for punk rock music, it's not that hard to play the parts, you know, and I don't even, I'm not, you know, I, I know that our lead singer, Rick, um, and guitarist, uh, I know he spends a lot of time writing music and practicing and, and, uh, um, like practicing singing, even stuff like that. I don't, I don't ever practice. I, you know, never. So that's maybe one thing that I don't spend as much time doing as, as, you know, as people might think. So, so you know, in your book, you, we talked a little bit, you have these tour reports and <clears throat> so I just want, I mean, they're fascinating and they're all throughout and how many, you must have at least like there's probably like what 70 80 different tour reports in here yeah yeah i took out hundreds <laughs> <laughs> so are there any that like i have to like i mean i love like there was one in here i think there's one in here where you were um messaging back and forth with some uh, a girl that you knew about like even where to get your hair cut right yeah, yeah that's jane <laughs> we have a song called jane i mean we have a song about her yeah, she's so brilliant. I just ran into her the other day, like for the first time in in a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so she, like, I went to visit her. She went to study in uh, in um, India, and I went to visit her. Um, like, she was studying Buddhism for a while in India. You know, so it's like people people who live in Urbana have magical lives. I think people who are from from Urbana like have magical lives and they do all these crazy things. But um, that, yeah, that was, since she was also a martial artist with me, um, she had done also, she was practicing Kung Fu and Taekwondo with me. Um, so yeah, the, but it that was a, that ended up being um, a tour report that was, we were not, we're not even on tour, but it was like about pride and it was about, yeah, it's just, so all these like weird manifestations of pride and ego 
um, come through this book. And then at the end, I just like, it it just happenstance. Like you can connect these dots of, of like sort of, sort of manifestations of like Buddhism, I guess. Uh, And, and so that I'm glad that you brought that one up because that was kind of like a, you know, like a, a pride, a, a pride tour report. Right. Like, and so that was like, yeah, choosing these or choosing what to put in and what to keep out. There's that, like, um, was this, like, like you said, you get to the end and you kind of see those patterns, but did you plan for those patterns or did they, right? Like, so no. that's really, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, this is a thing like, so in, in salary, man, when we play, we play this electronic music and I, I play like a keyboard. Everybody's got keyboards. We have a drummer and then I have a TV set. And I just kind of randomly turn the TV set on to different stations. And then at the end, like what with our music and at the end, people come up to me and they go, how did you get the TV station? How did you get all that to work at the same time? You know, like, why did it, why did it, um, why did it connect so well? And I was like, well, your brain connected it. That's all, you know, it's just, just, I think, I think, I think they all are, are random in some way and, and people are making connections out of them, which is, and I can make connections out of them too, which is nice. Which is, yeah, but it's also kind of awesome, right? Like in doing, in, in, in going through the tour reports and looking at the tour reports too, were there either people that you, like you talked about sort of reconnecting with Jane or that, were there other sort of people or places that you are, have been able to sort of reconnect with or remember, like, can you, is there anything yeah. in that? I have like, so the, um, Ian Mackay, who's, um, from F- the band Fugazi, like a huge influence on me. Um, I run into him, like we'd run into him on tour all the time. Sometimes we would open for Fugazi. Other times we'd just play in DC and he'd be there and I, and like, he'd be giving advice sometimes. <laughs> like I've gotten so much advice from him over the years. It's just been wonderful. So that's somebody who appears in, in and out of these. And, and this is something too that, you know, this is how Rick helped me with this this book. I was just like, I have a whole lot of words, and I'm just going to puke them up all over the computer, and then just I'm done. And he he would you know, and then somebody said, No, that's you're not done. That's not a book. There's no narrative arc in there. And then I'd be like, Well, what am I going to do? I don't know about narrative arcs. I'm a computer programmer. I just want to program assembler language. Leave me alone. I want to be in a cubicle. And then Rick said something like, You know, people people come in and out of your life. You can write about that. Like, you know, uh, at the beginning of the book, some, you know, um, uh, you can talk about Heidi, you know, this kind of Rick's, Rick's suggest, you know, I'm like crying and like, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do this. And he'd be like, look, Heidi, you know, you knew about Heidi, like Heidi or, you know, from Mercy Rule, before you even saw her, you heard about her. And then she, you can talk about, you know, you can say, you know, you heard about her, you can, and then she'll come back in later when you, when we play with them and then later on and stuff, and you could thread people through. And I was like, I guess I could do that. I guess. I don't know. And, and so that's what happened. I was like, oh, here's another person. He was right people do come into my life and then go, go out and I can talk about that. So, so that, that turned out really well. I'm trying to, trying to think of who else like, like comes in, comes in and out of the book. I mean, I had, so when I first started writing this, it was going to be like five different, like, like sort of themes. And the first theme was going to be about teachers. It was going to be 
all teachers. And then another one was going to be about computers. I had this all, like I have a whole list of teachers that I talked about and teachers like, like, like um, Shannon Selberg from the cows, right? Like not teachers like, you know, like what, like I had Rick Powers, the author. I had like, you know, just different reasons how they all taught me stuff. And then the computer part was easy. And then like the, I don't remember what the third part was probably music business. And the fourth part was women and gender studies. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that fourth part. And then that was, I gave up. And then I was like, forget it. I'm going to have to reorganize the whole book just into a timeline. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking myself into a corner here, but just do in, in a timeline, it's very easy to have people just coming in and out of the book. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's important too, like to, to have women who are part of the music industry tell their stories, right? Like, like, because we hear, because it's a different perspective, it's a different sort of outlook on um, participating and you, you, you get to hear different stories instead of the same old story over and over. Right. I'm so thankful for you, you know, for, for this blurb and, you know, just for like making sense of this for me. Cause again, I'm kind of, I'm more of like the, that I'm, I'm in the water and I don't, I don't understand the water really very well. So, but I do, you know, I can see reviews, people saying, you know, Oh, this book is very different than Henry Rollins book. I wonder why that is. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess it is. I don't know. Yeah. You're but, right. We, we tell different stories. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think sometimes we get so hung up on like, well, this is a woman in the, you know, like, what's it like to be a woman? And it's like, well, no, like what, just listen to my story. Right. Like, I'm just going to write, like, think about different stories. And if, if you ask me, I've probably said this before, we've heard enough from Henry Rollins. We don't need to hear from him anymore. Um, <laughs> Right. We need to, right. We need to hear like those other perspectives. Like you're going to view things differently. Like even like, where do I, you know, like, where do I find this place to sleep on the, you know, where do I sleep on the bus or whatever it might be? Like you care about different things. Right. And that's important. I do think that like, I'm, the more I talk to people and the more I watch my students, like my computer programming students too, um, I see like different trends. I see like certain I, you know, and, and my first computer programming class that I ever took from a woman was for the first time, it was all about like communication, like using computers to communicate. It was, it was human computer interaction, you know, back in the day when that was, a, the, then when that was new and I'd never in my life heard, heard, you know, of projects like this. All I heard was, you know, you can make a jukebox write it in C, you know, write, write it in C++, you know, and, and it's going to be creative because it's got band names in it. Um, and this woman was like showing us her project where she like had these chairs in a coffee shop and the chairs had TV sets on the tops of them and people could go, could appear in the TV set. So you could talk to people from people who were not already in the coffee shop, you know, people from all over the place, like these, these types of like telecommunication um, uh, projects. And that wasn't like, that was, that was mind blowing to me. And that was, you know, way before it was life changing to me, I think. Mm -hmm. So you've written this book, you've got this, we could probably talk about it forever, but it's just about since we've been talking about it for a while. So it's just come out. So what are there, I'll ask you two final sort of questions. Like, is there anything going on that you want to sort of um, promote for the book 
or that's going on with the book that you just want people to know about? Oh, uh, well, um, Poster Children has re-released our first album called Flower Plower. There are two L's. It's against hippies. Um, and uh, we're going to play some shows. So that's exciting to me because that, that was when I was first learning how to play bass. And I'm like, I didn't know you shouldn't play that many notes. So it's really fun to go like we've been practicing these these songs and we're known as a really good live band. So if you want to come. I don't know, we're getting old now, but I think we're probably still still have it. So so I'm excited to play shows. And uh, yeah, I don't um that's. I, I think that I'll have to do some sort of web component on this. And we still have our longest running podcast in the whole history of the universe. Started in 1999, Radio Zero. So there's that. So are you worried? And so my final question, and are you working on it? Like you've done this. Like, are you thinking of working on anything else writing wise? Or are you like, I've done this. I'm like, do it you was, have anything? It was really fun. And I don't know. Yeah, I'd love to. I I I think I might like to to try to write a a, a different book. I don't, like so while I was writing this book, I I had breast cancer. Like I found out I had I lost a boob in this book somewhere. Like all kinds of things happened. So, you know, I'm like like well, I you know, I'm going to wait to hear more like that and then like just like so sort of, you know what else is really interesting to me is the teaching and learning of martial arts is really, I think you probably, this is just another area where you don't hear a lot of women's voices. Um, and boy, you hear a lot of men's voices though. Martial artists, man, do they love to talk. They'll, they'll talk forever. So um, just the, just like, I don't know, the code switching between some of the um, Eastern ones, like the, you know, like Taekwondo and Kung Fu um, and, uh, and capoeira, which is the one that I'm practicing now, and this like capoeira is like like the like the alternate universe to punk rock because it's all about resistance. It's it's a Brazilian martial art that you know was said to have been developed uh, by enslaved people in in Brazil, enslaved Africans in Brazil, right? So it's a cultural practice, but. You have to play instruments. You have to sing songs. There's code in the songs. There's, um, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole culture around it, and it, it represents a community. Like the the practice of it represents a community, and it's just so like engrossing. And I'm 15 years into it now, which makes me a like a little bit more than a beginner, because <laughs> um, it's 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 such a such a deep, rich learning experience. I'd, I'd love to, I don't like, I, I'm not worthy of writing a book about it, but I'm at least worthy of like doing a little bit more research on it and maybe talking about the experience of trying to learn it, I guess. Well, that's, it's been so awesome talking to you. <laughs> it's been so fun. Again, Rose Marshak, who's the author of Play Like a Man, My Life and Poster Children. Rose, thanks for talking with me for New Books Network. Thank you so much. Thanks.